Hi there, I'm Travis, and this is the Why Is That Podcast. Constitution, spreading up the government into three branches, executive, judicial, and legislative, separating powers and ensuring balance. Constitution. Welcome back to the Why Is That Podcast. This week we are discussing Law Day and the 2018 theme, the separation of powers. The introduction song this week comes from the YouTube channel Mr. Betts Class, uh, specifically the Constitution song, which was a parody of Despacito. It's a pretty fun channel. You should check them out. Uh, so back to Law Day. Law Day is not a public holiday where you get the day off. Rather, it is a day to reflect on the role of law in the foundation of the country and to recognize its importance for society. Each year it is celebrated on May 1st in the United States and is sponsored by the American Bar Association. For more information about Law Day, you can visit the website at www.lawday.org. Law Day was first celebrated in the United States on May 1st, 1958, and was proclaimed by then-President Dwight D. Eisenhower. I have chosen to focus today's episode on the United States version of Law Day. There are other countries that celebrate Law Day. For instance, Canada just celebrated on April 17th, and many countries have some sort of holiday to celebrate the rule of law in society. Since 1958, Law Day has been celebrated each year on May 1st in the United States. The choice for May 1st was not just a random choice made by President Eisenhower. Ike and the other politicians behind the holiday were trying to rebrand the 1st of May to something a little more patriotic. In the Northern Hemisphere, May 1st has traditionally been the day of a spring festival known as May Day. May Day has long had a troubled history in the United States. It is generally thought of as either a pagan holiday or as a holiday for socialists and communists. Politicians have tried to declare new days to downplay the celebrations of May Day in the United States. For instance, in 1939, Pennsylvania declared May 1st to be Americanism Day, and in 1947, Congress declared May 1st to be Loyalty Day. Neither really persisted, so in 1958, they tried a different tact and proclaimed Law Day. Law Day allowed a day to celebrate the laws and virtues of the United States as a contrast to their Cold War socialist foes. Law Day never really became a massive holiday, but it still persists long after the Cold War ended and actually does a great job of teaching about certain pieces of the law. If you are interested in participating in a Law Day celebration, I would recommend looking to your local courthouses as those are the most common places I have found that have celebrations. Alright, that is enough about Law Day and May Day for today. If there's enough interest, I'll make a separate episode to discuss the fascinating history of May Day. But for now, let's move our attention to our main event, the separation of powers. The separation of powers is a political concept for state organization. It holds that various powers of governance should be separated into distinct and independent branches. The powers and branches are then kept independent from one another. Typically, these governmental powers are the legislative, executive, and judicial powers. In a very brief and oversimplified explanation, the legislative is the power to make laws, the executive is the power to enforce laws, and the judicial power is the power to interpret laws. In the United States, the legislative powers are given to Congress, the executive powers are given to the presidency, and the judicial powers are given to the Supreme Court. So why is it important to keep those powers separate? James Madison, also known as the father of the Constitution and fourth president of the United States, explained that it is because each branch serves as a check on the powers of the others so that no single branch becomes so powerful that they can suppress the populace at large. In the Federalist number 51, he explained, ambition must be made to counteract ambition. 
meaning that ambition of one branch counteracts the ambition of the other two branches. If you're unfamiliar with what Federalist Number 51 means, it refers to the essay number of the Federalist Papers, which were published by James Madison, John Jay, and Alexander Hamilton anonymously in order to defend the Constitution. In the words of Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton the Musical, the Federalist Papers were a series of essays anonymously published defending the Constitution to the public. Far from no one reading it, the Federalist Papers have become one of our best sources for understanding what the Founding Fathers meant the Constitution to mean. The importance of the separation of powers was stressed in the Federalist Papers, and the plan to separate them was provided in the Constitution. There are some early examples of separations of powers, but by and large, the way that we envision separation of powers today is a little bit more of a modern concept. Many ancient Greek city-states practiced various forms of mixed governments, and the Roman Republic had a number of different political institutions, including the Senate, Councils, Assemblies, and Tribunes. However, these styles of governments were more shared powers than separate powers, as there was a quite a bit of overlap, and the main way to keep the others in check was a veto, or to have overwhelming popular support, rather than the system separating the powers intentionally. The tradition that James Madison and the other framers of the Constitutions built upon was a very American one and built using Enlightenment-era philosophy. Therefore, it is a very American, British, and French version of governance. For now, we will skip past the Magna Carta and those developments, as I believe the best place to begin our story is with a man named John Calvin. John Calvin was a political philosopher and theologian. He is famous as the namesake of the Reformed Christian denomination known as Calvinism. His political thoughts and theories included early forms of the separation of church and state, and an early form of checks and balances in the form of separation of powers. Calvin believed and taught that government should be a combination of democracy and aristocracy. He felt that in order to minimize the misuse of political power, that political institutions should be divided between the aristocracy, lower estates, and magistrates. As the theological ideas of John Calvin and Martin Luther led to a reformation of the church, English Protestants who professed the new denominations and wanted to get away from the Church of England were forced to leave England. Initially, these individuals left to Holland, but while they wanted to be separated from the English church, they did not want to lose their English cultural identity. So the Puritanist Calvinist church leaders came together to establish a new colony in the new world of British America. In 1620, Plymouth Colony was established, and today we call those Puritan settlers the Pilgrims. Being so far away from England and operating with a degree of independence, the Pilgrims were able to operate self-rule and chose to emulate the political ideals of John Calvin. The United States Constitution would eventually form a tripart or three-part system of governance, but the early colonists formed a bipartite or two-part system of governance. This bipartite system combined the theories of John Calvin with practical examples of the British government. The freemen of Plymouth Colony elected a general court to function as legislative and judicial. The general court then elected a governor who served in the role of executive with his seven assistants. The other early colonists mostly followed in the footsteps of Plymouth Colony and developed similar constitutions and power sharing agreements. This included the Massachusetts Bay Colony, Rhode Island, Connecticut, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. Okay, so now it is time to go back to the Magna Carta. The Magna Carta, which means Great Charter, was an agreement between King John of England and his various lords and barons that signed on June 15, 1215. It guaranteed certain rights and liberties while also limiting the power of the king. Pretty much any time we deal with the law, specifically in the English common law system, we'll have to reference the Magna Carta. 
Well, I could talk your ear off for well over an hour about the Magna Carta. Today, I want to focus on how it assisted in the development of separation of powers. The Magna Carta established the Royal Council, which over time grew to become known as the Parliament of England. The Magna Carta settlement gave the Parliament of England the power to levy and collect any taxes and bar the king from doing so. This is one of the earliest examples of a strict separation of power between an executive, in this case the king, and a separate government body. Over time, the parliament grew more powerful and slowly but surely wrested more power away from the monarch, which allowed it to start to play the role of the legislative branch. I have not mentioned the judicial powers at all in this quick history of the British government as it gets a little bit complicated, and I hope to do a standalone episode about the independence of the judiciary at some point in the future. The slow evolution of the British separation of power formed one practical tradition of separation of powers, and the early self-rule government of the colonies provided another. British and French philosophers of the Enlightenment era used those traditions to draw new conclusions and present treatises of how to better those governmental systems. Traditionally, French historians placed the Age of Enlightenment as beginning in the year 1715, the year King Louis XIV died, and ending in the year 1789, the year the French Revolution began, also the year that the Constitution of the United States was ratified. Some modern historians move the beginning back to the 1620s, to the start of the scientific revolution, and move the end to the year 1800. Based on that time frame, you start to understand that many of the most prominent Enlightenment thinkers were contemporaries of America's founding fathers, and therefore the treatises discussing this new way to govern were widely read by them. The most notable philosophers in the development of the separation of powers were John Locke and Montesquieu. Out of the two, Montesquieu was the bigger influence as he advocated for strict separation of power and the associated system of checks and balances. In the year 1748, he published his famous treatise on political theory titled The Spirit of the Laws. In it, he articulates his theory on the separation of powers in the following way. In every government, there are three sorts of power, the legislative, the executive in respect to things dependent on the law of the nations, and the executive in regard to matters that depend on civil law. By virtue of the first, the prince or magistrate enacts temporary or perpetual laws and amends or abrogates those that have been already enacted. By the second, he makes peace or war, sends or receives embassies, establishes the public security, and provides against invasions. By the third, he punishes criminals or determines the disputes that arise between individuals. The latter we shall call the judiciary power and the other simply the executive power of the state. He then further elaborates that each of these powers should be separated and exercise their own functions in the following way. When the legislative and executive powers are united in the same person or in the same body of magistrates, there can be no liberty, because apprehensions may arise, lest the same monarch or senate should enact tyrannical laws to execute them in a tyrannical manner. Again, there is no liberty if the judiciary power be not separated from the legislative and executive, were it joined with the legislative, the life and liberty of the subject would be exposed to arbitrary control, for the judge would be then the legislator. Were it joined to the executive power, the judge might behave with violence and oppression. There would be an end of everything were the same man or the same body, whether of the nobles or of the people, to exercise those three powers, that of enacting laws, that of executing the public resolutions, and of trying the causes of individuals. Montesquieu's The Spirit of Laws was wide-read and very influential for the Founding Fathers of the United States, especially James Madison. 
James Madison was among the first congressmen in the United States as he was elected to Virginia's 5th District in the inaugural House of Representatives. Along with Thomas Jefferson, he also established the nation's first opposition party in the Democratic Republicans. He was the 5th Secretary of State before becoming the 4th President of the United States, serving from 1809 to 1817. But before all that, he earned himself the nickname Father of the Constitution for his work on the first drafts of the U.S. Constitution and the accompanying Bill of Rights. Madison, like many of the Founding Fathers, found that the Articles of Confederation, which was the first form of government for the United States, lacked the federal power to allow America to become a great nation. He quickly came to the conclusion that the United States would need to change to a new constitution or that the nation would devolve into anarchy. So he started reading and writing, conducting an extensive study of other world governments and political philosophies. It was at this time he studied the likes of Montesquieu and John Locke extensively. However, like all Americans who had fought a bloody war of independence, Madison felt a strong distaste for too powerful of an executive. However, he recognized that without an executive, the federal government would be too weak to manage the affairs of state. In May of 1787, delegates from each state, say for Rhode Island, came together at the Constitutional Convention. The convention was initially meant to revise the Articles of Confederation, but when James Madison was given his turn to speak, he presented a radical new plan for an effective government system that would become known as the Virginia Plan. In it, Madison detailed his vision for a form of government with three branches of government, legislative, executive, and judicial, along with inherent checks and balances that would restrict the ability of any of the three branches growing too powerful. He also suggested withholding some powers for the state governors, legislatures, and judges, so that not even the federal government would be able to outgrow the power of the states. While Madison's Virginia plan formed the basis of the U.S. Constitution, and by extension the separation of powers, Madison was the first to demure the moniker of the father of the Constitution, and instead point out the fact that the Constitution was not the offspring of a single brain, and instead the work of many heads and many hanks. The main counter plans were the New Jersey plan, which advocated for more power for smaller states, the Alexander Hamilton plan, which was deemed too similar to the British system, and the Pinckney plan, of which little detail remained, but likely helped the Committee of Detail fully flesh out the final constitution. While the different pieces of these other plans helped fine-tune Madison's Virginia plan, the biggest change from them occurred in a compromise between the New Jersey plan and the Virginia plan. The compromise, known as the Connecticut Compromise, is the compromise that gave us the legislative branch as we know it today, namely that it is a bicameral legislative in which the lower house, known as the House of Representatives, had its number of representatives determined by the population of the state, and the upper house, known as the Senate, had its number of representatives set at two for every state. This compromise is why Minnesota has eight representatives in the house, the state of New York has 27, Alaska has one, but all states have two senators. After Madison's presentation, each of the subsequent plans had some degree of the concept of separation of powers. However, that does not mean that everyone who attended the convention were fans of the system. Famously, Rhode Island did not send any delegates to the Constitutional Convention and would eventually become the last state to ratify the new Constitution. And two of the three delegates from the New York delegation left in protest. Only the junior delegate, Alexander Hamilton, chose to remain and become the sole signer from New York of the Constitution. One unique wrinkle to the separation of powers was that the Constitution further separated between the federal government and the state government. The system of separating powers between the state and federal government is called federalism. 
The system gave the powers to make money, declare war, manage foreign relations, and oversee trade between the states and with other countries to the federal government, while giving the powers to ratify amendments, manage public health and safety, and oversee trade within the state to the states. Together, they share the powers of making and enforcing laws, making taxes, and borrowing money. This allows the states to further check and balance the power of the federal government and vice versa. The shared powers sometimes make things complicated. For instance, certain states such as Colorado have made marijuana consumption legal while it remains an illegal substance on the federal level. So yeah, that can get a little complicated. Federalism provides a fun change that is completely separate to the separation of powers that we discussed earlier, but I had to at least mention it. In the end, the U.S. Constitution successfully created a new form of government for the United States with a much stronger federal government. This government has grown over the years the United States has grown into the superpower we know it today. In practice, the system of separation of powers and checks and balances has worked as predicted. The president has led the executive branch to levels of power that the likes of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson would never have dreamed of. And yet, the ambitions of the various presidents has been somewhat kept in check by a Congress who still want to be considered as the true body of the American people. The Supreme Court hasn't really had any naked power grabs like the other two branches, but the steady hand of the court has kept either of the other branches from destroying the Constitution and trampling on the people's rights. And actually, we should talk about that last piece, the idea that the judicial branch can review laws and actions made by the other two branches in order to determine whether or not those laws and actions are constitutional. This power of judicial review was not explicitly given in the Constitution. Instead, it arose from one of the Supreme Court's early decisions and has been one of the Supreme Court's major responsibilities ever since. Judicial review was officially established in the landmark case Marbury v. Madison and was decided on February 24, 1803. In the decision, the Supreme Court gave the following holding. Section 13 of the Judiciary Act of 1789 is unconstitutional to the extent it purports to enlarge the original jurisdiction of the Supreme Court beyond that permitted by the Constitution. Congress cannot pass laws that are contrary to the Constitution, and it is the role of the judicial system to interpret what the Constitution permits. After the Marbury v. Madison ruling, the judicial branch's main ability to check the powers of the other two branches was the power to strike down unconstitutional laws and actions. Imagine how much different the United States would be today if the Supreme Court had not found that public school segregation based on race was unconstitutional, or that criminal defendants had the right to an attorney even if they cannot afford one, or that prisoners must be advised of their rights in the form of the Miranda warning. All of these cases were forms of the Supreme Court exercising its powers to check the powers of the other branches to protect citizens' constitutional rights. So that covers a basic history of the separation of powers. The U.S. Constitution practices a trias politica, or three-way doctrine, for the separation of power, and within its seven articles and 27 amendments, outline the exact powers and form. Article 1 articulates legislative branch, Article 2 articulates the executive branch, and Article 3 articulates the judicial branch. I hope that gives you a decent understanding of the complex system. If you have further questions or if you found anything presented in today's episode unclear, please let me know by emailing me at whyisthatpod at gmail.com, by tweeting me at whyisthatpod, by making a Facebook post in the group, or by visiting the show's website at whyisthatpodcast.blogspot.com. 
If you are interested in learning more about the early political systems of the United States, I would suggest the podcast early and often. I really enjoy it anyways. Today's sources include lawday.org, history.com, Encyclopedia Britannica, The Incomplete, True, Authentic, and Wonderful History of May Day by Peter Leinbaugh, the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy, and the Yale Avalon Project, which hosted a digital version of several primary sources used. That does it for episode five of the Why Is That podcast. I hope that you enjoyed the episode. If you did, I have two calls of action for you. One, rate the show. And two, subscribe. You may do those two things using your preferred method. The show is currently available on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Podcast Addict, newly added to iHeartRadio, and many others. If you are interested in watching the video, you may subscribe on YouTube or join the Facebook group. Okay, that does it for me. Thank you for listening to the Why Is That podcast. Cheers.